There's a story about a man. He was a, uh, I don't even know, a blatant atheist. That he, a militant atheist. Maybe that's the, the word for it. He sent his son to a school called the Trinity Institute. It was in his town. And uh, he knew it had Christian roots, but um, he wanted his kid to go to a great school. And so after a month, his boy came home. Uh, and he's got, he says, casually, you know, by the way, Dad, do you know what Trinity means? It means the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. And the Father, he just uh, couldn't control his rage. And he, he seized his son, and he declared, Son, I'm going to tell you something, and I don't want you ever to forget it. There is only one God, and we do not believe in him. Thank you. <laughs> That's the kind of attitude you'd expect from someone who would call themselves a, a militant atheist. But by contrast, the, the person we're looking at today considered himself a, a very religious man. He worshipped a multitude of gods. They just weren't Jehovah God. And he was religious. He just wasn't religious to the God of his fathers, uh, Jehovah. And because Ahaz, the man we'll look at, rejected the Lord, Second Chronicles twenty-eight nineteen tells us, the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had promoted wickedness in Judah and had been most unfaithful to the Lord. And Ahaz, he reigned in Judah for 16 years. He made every effort to destroy every religious foundation in the nation of Judah. He shut the gates of the temple. He melted down the uh, temple vessels of gold and silver in them. He offered burnt incense on high places throughout Judah, uh, something that the law explicitly condemned. And he set up altars on his roof so that he could worship the stars and the moon and the sun. And Second Kings chapter 16, verse 2 tells us, unlike David, his father, he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, his God. He walked in the ways of the kings of Israel, and even sacrificed his son in the fire, following the detestable ways of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. Isaiah 8.19 even implies that Ahaz also sought to speak with the dead to find out his future. And now his future is going to come knocking on his door. So let's read, give a little bit of context. We can't read it all because it's all throughout the Old Testament. There's some in Second Chronicles. But we're going to look in Isaiah chapter 7 this evening because there's uh, the last line of this passage we cite pretty often. We just don't cite it in this context. Uh, it says in verse 1, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, the Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are employed to frame. And so his heart and the heart of his people were moved. So as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. Then in verse 3, Then the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shearjashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field, and say to him, Take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint-hearted, for these two stubs of smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, Let us go against Judah and treble it, and let us make a gap in its wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. And in verse 7, thus says the Lord God, 
it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass, for the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, a frame will be broken, so it will not be a people. The head of a frame is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Ramalia's son. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. Do you have the remote there, Lauren? Just press the one to get it off. I, I'm not sure. Maybe I can get it back up. Give me the remote. What did he just say in Isaiah 7? That's a long passage there. What's going on? Okay. So God is speaking to who? Isaiah. And what's he telling Isaiah? Don't worry about the invasion. And who is Isaiah supposed to tell this to? Ahaz. And why would Ahaz be so concerned? It's his land. There's two kings, and they are at the very gates of Jerusalem. They're knocking on the doors, trying to break in. We also know um, from other places that uh, the Philistines and the Edomites are out raiding the countryside and pillaging the villages around Judah. And so God is saying, Isaiah, go to Ahaz and say, don't worry. Then we will pick up in verse 10. If you haven't opened up to Isaiah uh, 7 already. Moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then in verse 13, he said, hear now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken by both her kings. Now what do we normally focus on in these 16 or so verses. Is there anything that stands out that we recognize? I don't think we tell the story of Ahaz very often, but we sure do read that those last few sentences, right? It's the cross reference that we read in Matthew 1.23. We read this prophecy out of context, but it's about a son born of a virgin and who would be named Emmanuel, God with us. So this is the setting where that prophecy is first revealed. Like we talked about this morning, the prophecies all throughout the Old Testament that pointed forward to a Savior. And two of Ahaz's arch enemies, Rezin the king of Aram and Pekah the king of Israel, had marched against Judea. Now they were at the very gates of Jerusalem. And these nations, they'd already beaten Ahaz other times. We read in Second Chronicles that 120,000 of Ahaz's soldiers were killed in a single day, that 200,000 civilians were carried into captivity in that same battle. And so Ahaz, he knows defeat. He knows when they're coming and knocking on the doors of Jerusalem that he's probably going to be defeated again. And here they are back for more. And so Ahaz has to do something, and he's thinking about his options. And there's this powerful uh, kingdom to the north, Assyria, 
And so uh, Ahaz goes knocking on Tiglath-Pileser's, their king's uh, door for help. And that was a bad idea. Why would it be a bad idea to go to Assyria? Any ideas? You may not pick up this story or talk about this as, as often. So, but Assyria was an incredibly vicious place. It wasn't some place you wanted to turn unless it was your last resort. And so it turned out once Ahaz did go to Assyria and agreed that they would come and protect Jerusalem. In 2 Chronicles 28.20, Tiglath-Pileser, the king of Assyria, came to him and distressed him, and he did not assist him. They all died. They didn't get through the gates of Jerusalem, just like God promised, but Ahaz paid for turning to Assyria. He never even helped Ahaz defeat his enemies. In fact, King Ahaz ended up paying protection money to Assyria to protect his nation from Assyria's soldiers, not even these two uh, opposing armies that are there at the gate. And so Judah became a vassal state of them. But before Ahaz sealed his bargain with Assyria, God wanted to offer him another option. What was his other option here in Isaiah chapter 7? God sent Isaiah to him, and he says, tell Ahaz that this invasion isn't going to succeed. It's not going to work. And not only that, what else is going to happen? What's going to happen to these two kingdoms that are now standing against him? What? They'll be gone. And sure enough, two years later, both of these men that are mentioned, the terrible enemies of Ahaz, are assassinated. Secondly, God offered Ahaz assurance that he would do as he promised. He tells Ahaz, ask me for a sign, right? And what does Ahaz say? No. I'm not going to test you. When else do we hear that? Who else says that they're not going to test God? Jesus, right? I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to test you. I'm not going to ask for a sign. Uh, and God says, you know, you can ask me for anything. It can be as deep as the depths of the sea or as high as the heavens. Ask me for anything and I will show you. Just ask me for a sign. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to test you. And God says, I'm going to show you a sign anyways. What's that sign going to be? son born of a virgin named Emmanuel. Ahaz turns God down for seeing anything right here and right now. He gives a pious excuse. I'm not going to ask. I won't put the Lord to the test in verse 12. But Ahaz, he's not a pious man. He, he doesn't love the God of Israel. He hates the God of Israel. And so he politely tells Isaiah and his God to go and take a hike. And he pays the price. He's just like anyone who won't trust in God. The only difference is that Ahaz is wrapped in the trappings of being religious. He has many gods, but as far as the God of Israel goes, Ahaz doesn't believe. He's a practical atheist. And, says, and so God says, fine, if you don't want a sign, I'm not going to give one to you right now anyways. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. But Ahaz, he just turned away from God and he ignored him. He didn't believe the prophecy. He refused to accept the proclamation that a virgin would be with child. And there are lots of people who do the same thing even to this very day. When they hear about the virgin birth, many people, even religious people, turn away in disbelief. I wish I had the um, slide up. I, I found this poll. It was really uh, quite stunning. 7,441 so-called 
uh, Protestant clergy were polled on whether or not they believed in the virgin birth, whether or not Jesus was born to the virgin Mary, and the results were stunning. Out of those interviewed, they found that the following percentages of the clergy from different denominations didn't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. Out of uh, preachers who said that they preached with Christian or Church of Christ congregations, uh, it was 12%, American Lutherans 19%, American Baptists 34%, Episcopalians 44%, Presbyterians 49%, Methodists 60 and that alone would be shocking, but other surveys showed in general 25% of people who say they're preaching the gospel say they reject that Jesus was born of a virgin as soon or as um, recently as 1998. That poll was done. I think that's pretty astonishing. I didn't even know, uh, quite frankly, it was an option. This isn't some theological uh, obscure idea. It's not like the Trinity where there's nuance and it's not fully explained to us. It's not like what Paul's thorn in his side was. This is laid out clearly for us. It's plain and simple for anyone who pick up this book to believe. So why would so many, it uh, seems, reject such a, a central doctrine in the Bible? What would be the motivation It doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit into what we understand in the world. I think it's pretty simple. We say that we believe in God, but we don't really believe in a God who can do anything. We don't believe in a God who, who's capable of doing anything that truly matters. Maybe he exists, but does he have any power? We, we have no faith in God that really means anything. We, we've become the theological counterpart of an atheist. Sure, God may be there, but so what? You know, why does it matter that God exists? And you know, like Ahaz, we might be religious on the outside, but on the inside, we don't have faith. We're theological atheists. Now, if it were just the prophecy out of Isaiah that maintained that there would be this virgin birth, if we're just looking at Ahaz in particular, maybe we can give him some slack. This is an unbelievable thing. You know, I could understand this. There are things about this prophecy Maybe they could be read in a different way. Maybe they're difficult to comprehend. But then we read Matthew that tells us that Jesus' birth to Mary took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us in Matthew 1, 22 through 23. So essentially, if we reject the virgin birth, we're calling Matthew a liar. And we're also calling Luke a liar because he tells the same story with this reference to Isaiah 7. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town of Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary, Luke 1, 26 through 27. So how had this virgin become pregnant? Well, the angel Gabriel told Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God in Luke 1.35. And Matthew agrees. In his gospel, Gabriel tells Joseph, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1.20. There's no getting away from the fact 
Both of these gospel accounts are saying Mary was not just an unmarried young lady. She was a virgin. She had never known a man. So if these gospels are so clear about Mary being a virgin, why would anyone deny such an obvious New Testament plain teaching? And it's because we just don't believe it. It's unbelievable. When it comes to miracles, we say this can't truly have happened. And that's it. We can't believe it. It couldn't possibly have happened. It's unreasonable. It's unfathomable. It's never happened before that we've seen it. And God, he's just not capable of doing something like that. If we can't imagine it, if we can't wrap our minds around it, then it couldn't possibly have happened. We say we serve God, but he's not a God that can truly do anything amazing. We don't serve a big God. We serve a little God. There's a story about a theology professor uh, some preaching school who was sitting in a um, chapel service and one of his students who had graduated um, several years back was coming back to be a guest speaker um, for the chapel and, and he, he walked up to the student after the service after he had spoken and he said if you ever come back again I, I'm not going to come hear you preach I only come and hear my students once, because it only takes once for me to know whether they are a big godder or a little godder. And he said, some men have a little god. They're always in trouble with him. He can't do any miracles. He can't protect his Bible from errors. He doesn't intervene on behalf of his people. They have a little god, and I call them little godders. And there are some who have a great god. He speaks, and it is done. He commands and it stands fast. He knows how to show himself strong on behalf of them that fear him. And he says, you have a great God. I know that. And no matter what else you say, I know he is going to work with you. And you're going to have a great ministry. You know, there are people who are stuck believing in a little God, maybe many little gods, many idols in their life, but they don't believe in a God who can truly do anything. He's limited to their own imaginations. And because that is true, they end up being like Ahaz. They don't really believe their God can do anything they can't imagine, but they go through religious motions, perhaps pretending to be pious when they're actually just telling God, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to ask you for a sign because I don't believe you can fulfill it. You can say, I can ask you, you know, God told Isaiah to tell Ahaz, you can ask me for anything. As high as the mountains, as deep as the sea, ask me for anything and I will show you who I am, that you don't have to turn to Assyria. Ahaz says, no, I'm not going to. Now, I understand all that, big God, little God, but why should I care? Why does it matter that Jesus was born to a virgin? Why is that in the Bible? Why is that uh, unbelievable statement so central to our faith? What do you think? Why does it matter, this idea that Jesus was born of a virgin? Why does that matter to my life or my relationship with God? Yeah, it's the nail on the head. This is what God had prophesied. Like we talked about this morning. If God said it, I don't have to understand it. I just need to realize it was important to him for me to know about this. In the prophecy began what we read in Genesis 3. Uh, Adam and Eve were tossed out of the garden because of their sin, but before God evicted them, he made Satan a promise. He said, because you have done this, 
Cursed are you. Above all the livestock and all the wild animals, you will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, we talked about how that means hatred this morning, between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Genesis 3, 14 and 15. And notice the prophecy, it didn't say Satan's head would be crushed by the offspring of a man, like we discussed this morning, or the offspring uh, of a man and a woman. This child was the offspring of a woman. Now, to make clear how unusual that was, we need to understand how rarely the Bible ever spoke of the child as an offspring of the woman. A child was referred to as the offspring of the father. And Galatians 4.4 4 picks up on that. It says, but the, when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Not born a man and woman, but born of a woman. And why would the prophecy say it like that? Why was the Messiah born of a woman and not of a man and a woman? Well, because Jesus came to be our sin offering. If Jesus had been born of a mortal woman and a mortal man, he would have been what? Just like us. It was, it, there's a lot of answers all at once, and I <laughs> quite good, but I think, I think we got it between all of that. He didn't send a, a prophet to die in our place. He didn't send a preacher to die in our place. He didn't send a, a nice man to die for our sins. Jesus came down in human form, and he, as God, shed his blood for our sins. Now think about that. If Jesus had been merely immortal, he wouldn't have been a perfect sacrifice. Why is that? You know, so there's some debate. Um, yeah, it was on Facebook just recently where it was talking about, well, if Jesus was fully man, but he still lived a perfect life, he could still be a perfect sacrifice. And maybe that's true, but what's the hole in that argument? What do we know about mortal men? We die. We're not perfect. That's the answer. If Jesus were fully mortal, he would not be perfect because None of us have ever been able to do it. That's not how this works. Scripture says he died for our sins, but a sacrifice was required by God's law to be perfect and without blemish. And mortal people, we have plenty of blemishes. A sacrifice for the sins of mankind would need to be a perfect sacrifice. He would have to be totally perfect, totally good. But Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, 17, there is only one who is good. And who was he referring to? Oh, I always thought he was talking about me in that. <laughs> all, of all the rest of us fall under condemnation. All have sinned. <laughs> all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so I couldn't ever die for your sins. I have sinned in my life. I have blemishes on my soul. You couldn't die for my sins. A perfect sacrifice would have to be sinless. We couldn't do that. Only God is good. Only God that was perfect enough to step into our place and die for our sins. And that's why when speaking about this Messiah, this Emmanuel who was going to come, Isaiah declared in Isaiah 59, God saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm worked salvation for him and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. And then in verse 20, he says, the Redeemer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who repent of their sins. You know, God looked, he saw, and we were reading in Ecclesiastes on Sunday morning, um, Solomon describes a world um, that he has seen. He see, says he's seen everything under the sun. And his conclusion is, it's all what? Vanity. 
It's all miserable. He, he, just this morning we saw um, when we get a, a few glimpses of good, we should snatch them and cling on to them because they are few and far between. God looked down and he saw this injustice and he was appalled. There is no one to intervene. There's no mortal being capable of rescuing his creation. And so he did it himself. He clothed himself in a human form and he came to die on the cross for our sins. And if that were not true, John 3.16 would be robbed of its power. Scripture would be robbed of its power. If God did not step down from heaven to take our sins, John 3.16 might read, for God so loved the world that he sent someone, anyone, and someone else, but not himself. God didn't send someone else. He did it for us because we couldn't not only would we not do it, we couldn't do it for ourselves. And when the angel declared the prophecy to Mary, Matthew tells us, this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When, Mary, or when Jesus was born of Mary, he was literally God with us. If he hadn't been born a virgin, that couldn't have been true. And being born of a mortal woman, he was completely human. And being born of the Holy Spirit, he was completely God. And when we reject the virgin birth, we're rejecting a, a very basic tenet of who God is. That he is the only one capable of dying for our sins because he is the only one, as he put it, who is good. And we reject that Jesus could be born of a virgin because we just don't believe that. But I think we lose the sight of what we actually believe. There's only one sacrifice that could be made. It wasn't a natural sacrifice. It wasn't something that could ever happen naturally. It was always supernatural. Someone put it, if a person lived the kind of life that Jesus lived, that he performed miracles, that he healed the sick, that he raised the dead as Jesus did, that he taught great truths that transcended current philosophical thought like Christ did. He was crucified on a cross. He bodily arose from the grave on the third day and ascended into heaven before many witnesses as Jesus did. If I believe all that, well, I'm inclined to believe such a person could be virgin born. Matthew one twenty two: the virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. We believe in a God who's powerful enough to make that prophecy that was made centuries before any of uh, mankind ever had a glimpse of what this Redeemer would actually look like. We believe in a God who was powerful enough to not only say it would happen, but make it happen. Bring a son into the world through the Virgin Mary, uh, because we believe in a God who's capable and loving enough even to conquer death. Ahaz, he didn't believe this prophecy. He didn't believe that, that God could keep his promises. But we know today he can't because he did it. He showed us that this son who was going to come into the world wouldn't just say as a, a baby in a manger, but he would grow up not only to rock the people of his day, but to transform our lives for centuries after. And not only our lives, but our eternity. The child that Isaiah 7 points forward to has come. And the birth of Jesus it tells us God was there for us. God is there for us. And so the question is, are we going to respond to that love? Will we be there for him? So if you're ready to accept that gift, that this son, born of a virgin named Emmanuel, God with us, came to offer, turn away from your past, be baptized so you can be cleansed of it, rise up to live a new life with Christ as your master, and as we said this morning, your victor too. Now's the time to come to the front of the room 
as we stand and as we sit.